Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We want to start off the new year with a new feature to the podcast. I'm calling it Pediatric Sports Medicine Profiles. There have been some significantly instrumental individuals who have been influential in this landscape, whether it be training many of us, people who have completed critical research in the area of pediatric sports medicine, those who have been leaders of major organizations, or were just trailblazers for a lot of the rest of us in this profession. All of us have stories to tell, and I'm truly excited to feature people who have had a significant impact in pediatric sports medicine. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, my guest for our first profile episode is Dr. Bernard Griesmer. He is a native Missourian. He received his bachelor's degree as well as his doctor of medicine from St. Louis University. He then completed a residency in pediatrics at Cardinal Glennon Hospital for Children in St. Louis. Dr. Griesmer was the recipient of the Thomas Schaefer Award from the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2011. So that is a a high level pediatric sports medicine honor and was inducted to the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame in 2020. He currently resides in Springfield, Missouri, where he has spent his career as a physician. So welcome to the podcast, Bernie. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's, it's exciting for me to talk to you. You've been an instrumental person for me when I moved to Missouri. And, you know, I'd love to hear your story and, and let some of our listeners hear more about your role in, in how you've been involved with pediatric sports medicine and giving us a little history with some of the stuff. And let's just start by talking about what influenced you to get into the field of medicine, first of all. Well, hopefully some of this will not sound like ancient history. <laughs> but late early 70s, I was actually a sociology major at St. Louis University. My, I took my first year of college at Lewis University in Chicago. And then my undergraduate actually has some Washington University credits to it. I took organic over at Wash U. I saw. But I was in a hurry. Got my uh, bachelor's degree when I was 21. Got my doctorate when I was 24. I looked like Doogie Howser. But the, <laughs> uh, at the time I was getting ready to graduate, the hot shots at St. Louis University were the pre-meds. And so it got a little bit competitive. So not to be outdone, I added some <laughs> chemistry and all my pre-med requirements, and Dag Nabbit got in after three years, which is just unheard of anymore. I think one of the reasons St. Louis U was interested in me was that was the era where they were starting the first community medicine departments. And I hmm. joke in my class, I think I always told my buddies that the I think I was there to balance the class. That was okay. in the height of the Vietnam War. There were 14 PhDs in my class. Wow. And several of my associate professors were also my classmates uh, t- coming back to get their MDs. So it was a little bit of a challenge, but I got through it. Now, by the time I got my junior and senior year medical school and clinicals, yeah, it, it evened out. That's where your sociology skills come into play. Actually, that was sort of the reason I got into to medicine. And then, like most medical students, when folks ask, well, when did you get interested in pediatrics? Well, we'd be on internal medicine at Furman Deloge and all the internal track folks would talk about how can you stand those pediatrics and all the screaming kids and the dealing with the mothers. And I would be up there with, you know, looking at some 85, 90 year old with 16 medications. And I'm sitting there going, how can you do this? And so yep, uh, yep. I'm sure you have the same story. Like, same for me. I'm sure, like most folks, about your junior year, you get in those clinicals 
And their biggest value, other than you learn a lot, is that you find out sort of what you're good at, or more probably what you're comfortable with. So by the time I was a senior, other than an elective on neurosurgery and some other stuff, by that time I was married, and I think we, my wife and I decided uh, neurosurgery and uh, wedded bliss were mutually incompatible. No offense to my neurosurgeons, there's several in my neighborhood. Yes. You know, by the time I got into my senior year, most of my rotations, clinical rotations, electives were on pediatrics. And once I uh, matched with Glennon, that was where I went. I was I really roll. What's interesting is after I finished residency and you start talking about well, what got you interested in sports medicine, my wife and I were both from the Southwest Missouri area. Honestly, we were both, we were going ahead into metropolitan St. Louis practice. We thought we were going to stay in St. Louis. But a pediatrician down here in Springfield, Dr. Jim Salmon, who's retired, was taking care of some of my nieces and nephews and heard that he was from Glennon, originally from San Francisco, got in touch with me at Glennon when I was chief resident and leaned on me to come down and take a look. So I came down to Springfield and joined him. But the reason bringing that up is when everybody goes, well, how'd you get interested in sports medicine? Dr. Salmon's standard line back then was coming out of residency at Glennon, especially, quote, they used to call that pediatrics, unquote. So when I got down to Springfield, I was doing neonatology. I had 12 babies. My first Christmas, I think I had 12 babies on TPN and five on ventilators. You know, we sort of rotate the nursery every month. And, you know, young new kid on the block, you get December. So I don't know oh, yes. that Christmas. Yeah. Same story up until, gosh have to look it up, eight or nine years ago, I was still part of the critical care team at Cox, which is the other healthcare system here in Springfield. And in fact, Jim Wilson, I actually started that unit. As things go along, you start tailoring your CME to what your patients need. And I, you know, I enjoyed mm-hmm. critical care fees and I did it for a long time and enjoyed neonatology. But in the 70s and 80s is when the boards start cranking up. Now, sports medicine is a late comer to that field. But cardiology, I think, was an early one. But, you know, it became obvious you weren't going to be able to do that very long without becoming board certified. And then you sit there going, gee, you know, do I want to, you know, two kids, tuition, blah, 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 blah. So I said, well, what tipped my hand, believe it or not, was in the early 80s. We were at this Academy of Pediatrics used to have a spring meeting that rotated like the fall meeting still does. I don't think they do the spring meetings anymore. So no. I, my wife and I went to Hawaii back when you could get away with that. And we went to an American Academy of Pediatrics spring meeting and they had all the workshops. Well, a year or so before that, there was a pediatrician in Springfield who rejoined the military. He had World War II military time, so Lee Vensel. And he had a mature practice but at the time he re-enlisted, his partners, Fred and Doug, weren't taking new patients. And I think I might have been the only newer pediatrician in Springfield that was taking new patients. So I still remember the call from Lee one day, Lee Vensel, and he goes, you know, I really appreciate it. I was sort of interested in teenagers or we'd share some patients back and forth. I know I, he and I cross-covered on neonatology. So he goes, would you be interested in taking some patients? I just don't want to leave them hanging, you know, some of my favorite patients. And I, oh, sure, Lee. Come, yeah, sure, send them over. We had 375 families switch in three weeks. And I was, well, I was already booked out six weeks 
when I got here, gyms, and we were that busy back then, 40 patients, 45 patients a day, six days a week. Well, a lot of pediatricians, after you've been in town for 15 years, you take care of 15-year-olds. After I'd been in town for three years, 75% of my patients were young athletes. It, it was just, that's just what it was. So I, I'm sitting here going, well, I got a good Lord. They're asking questions. You know, like, what do I eat? You know, all this stuff. Yeah. What, how do I train? And we've, over the years, we've had quite a few. We've had four Olympians and four or five kids in the NFL, two Anthony Tolliver. We've had three or four kids in the NBA, a couple of baseball players. One of my baseball players shut the Cardinals down for six innings a couple of years ago. <laughs> but anyway, at that meeting in Honolulu, they had these breakout workshops. And Dr. Garrick from San Francisco was give, presenting uh-huh. one of these. And he was in the mode of, you know, you, you, you can do this. There's some, with a little bit more knowledge, you can do a lot more. I remember him saying that. And so I thought, came home from that with, well, I, maybe I can do that. So I started bringing some of his early, early suggestions in pediatric sports medicine to my practice and sort of grew. And then the American College of Sports Medicine started their team physician course. They had part one, part two, part three. Well, I didn't get on the first one, so I got two, three, and one, but apparently there weren't that many folks that had completed all three of the team physician courses, and they just didn't finish up the course. So when it came time for the Academy of Pediatrics to talk about grandfathering in folks to the sit for the board when that came up, that was one yeah. of the credentials that they saw. I was one of, I don't know how many people they grandfathered in. But I, I think I've got certificate 22 yeah. or some, something stupid. And then in the Academy of Pediatrics, I think I was vice president of Missouri chapter or something. So I'd meet people at the various section meetings, chapter meetings, joint meetings. And Greg Landry was on the Committee on Sports Medicine. Back then, the committee was the scientific and the section was the membership issue. So I was able to get into both of those. So I was a member. And as Greg was going off, he called me and he says, hey, we'd like to maintain some Midwestern. I can't remember what he said, representation or sensibility. I can't remember. <laughs> I can remember. I said, boy, Greg, I'm up to my keister and I'm busy, you know, all this stuff. He sent me a letter that said, quote, I wish you would consider tossing your hat in the ring. Well, you don't turn down Greg Landry. So I said, sure. Yep, and so that was back when those the committee were appointed by the board of American board of American Academy of Pediatrics board of directors. So I was on the committee, and I was on that for six six years or something, and then continued some work in the section, and so I was I think on the section executive committee, and then our district chairman, she asked me whether I would help stay on even further. And that was that merger between the section and the committee into the Council of Sports Medicine, Pediatric Sports Medicine. So I was one of the six or seven folks that sort of engineered that, you know, while I was doing Missouri State Chapter President and everything <laughs> everything else. Yeah, just for some yeah. background for our listeners, the way the AAP works now, so, you know, the current current generation who is pediatric sports medicine physicians, we're, we're all familiar with the Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness. Yes. Uh, and I was aware still of the committee and section, 
Yeah. And we were the, the sports medicine group. We were, I think we were one of the first, if not the first council um, we that the AAP had. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was, we were kind yeah. of the guinea pigs. That's, that's, yeah. that's correct. That's correct. They didn't know what to do. With yeah. That. They merged the two together. So yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 we were the beta. Uh, I think there may have been one other one, but I can remember back then there was a lot of resistance from some of the established ones, neonatology, cardiology, gastroenterology, you know, some of those uh, turfs were a little bit more established. And I think we were sort of the, well, let's see how this works. And apparently, I guess we did our job. It stayed. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Bernie Griesmer. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising can have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We are back and we are continuing our discussion with Dr. Bernie Griesmer, a pediatric sports medicine profile on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Yeah, you uh, you rotated off the council. I think I kept the Missouri representation or sensibility, whatever you want to call that. <laughs> I could because I, yeah. I joined. I got elected to the council in two thousand eight. So oh, yeah. right after You're you after had rotated left. off. Yeah. So yeah, and then I was there for the six year term and mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Yep, so we had some Missouri representation <laughs> for a while there. But I'm curious, you know, with kind of how things worked. With I, I'm I'm sure it's probably not that much different between what was happening with the committee because like you talked about the committee was really the one that would do the policy statements and things like that and then transitioning to the council where the council and the section merged I mean I, I'm assuming there probably wasn't that much dramatically different between the two but you know as as pediatric sports medicine grew I'm I'm kind of curious as kind of how you see the role of how the the committee and then subsequently the council that that had on just pediatric sports medicine in general I mean that you were on there for a long time I mean 13 years between yeah. the, starting with the committee and then when you rotated off of the council I'm I'm curious your perspectives just how that changed over that 13 years it, it actually made it somewhat more efficient because it, it still has two functions uh, the scientific ones which essentially is proposing and moving through 
American Academy of Pediatric Board of Director policy statements and overseeing other publications like uh, Healthcare of the Young Athletes there. A major we always had liaisons. I don't know whether physical examination monograph was one. I was on the initial on-field care of the spine-injured athlete, Rod Hanfin, and th- those functions really didn't change. What made it a little bit nicer is to get everybody in one room, and it made it a lot more efficient. Uh, travel time, sure. It, it, sure. it really did expedite the process, and it made the economy, both you know, all the meetings and the economy of our time, a little bit more useful. You know, you mentioned a lot about doing the neonatology and critical care. I think, you know, now we're at a point where most that go into sports medicine almost exclusively practice sports medicine alone. I think there's very few that do what you do and what Greg did and what Dave Bernhardt did of people I'm familiar with of having worked with or or know their their practice background that that were doing both general pediatrics or in your case, obviously a lot more than just general pediatrics and then also dabbling in sports medicine on the side. There were very few that were just exclusively sports medicine, but now it's almost the opposite. I don't know many people that are still doing the primary care, which has caused a lot of, you know, there's a lot of that consternation. Do we still call ourselves? primary care sports medicine specialists, we have the primary care background training, but there's not a lot of the primary care that gets done by most people. It's mostly musculoskeletal medicine now, which I, I think could be good or bad. I think that the advantage we have, obviously, is when we do get in those team physician roles is the ability to do the primary care part of sports because there is that primary care part of sports. It's not all musculoskeletal, as yeah. you know very well. But yeah, it's it's kind of interesting how that has changed, and I, I don't I don't know many people that still do their their primary care stuff anymore. Well, hopefully, you don't want to work yourself out of a job, but I think to a certain degree, we we all you and we and Greg, we've taught enough other folks in like through the American Academy of Pediatrics to where it's getting some of that stuff like basic sports nutrition is getting to be going back full circle what Jim said. They used to call that pediatrics. So if we can just elevate that game. Now, fortunately, uh, with the Mercy system, I'm here at Springfield, they were able to sink several million dollars into an office complex for me that was called the Health Track Center, still operational. Family medicine, pediatrics. We're a training site for uh, the entry-level master's program from Missouri State University in athletic training. We have exercise phys folks rotate through there. So the front of my office is about a 20,000 square foot training center. It looks like a big gym. All the rehab, all the knee rehab is done in our building for this area system. But with that, when I was uh, left clinical practice a year and a half ago, retired, my four partners there, pediatric partners, including family medicine doctors, still have access to 18 athletic trainers. I mean, they can literally holler across the hall and Jim Rayner, one of his crew, comes in and fixes stuff. So we were one of the first really that we're using athletic trainers as physician extenders, not from the necessarily the licensing standpoint, but from the functionality standpoint, oh my gosh, I couldn't have done what I did without my athletic trainers. Holy crack. Yeah. I mean, it's just I my some of my trainers, I I just brag on them. They were so good. If if they would come in and go, yep. Hey doc, you need to take a look at this. I would drop what I was doing and cross the hall because, I mean, it was they picked up everything from a sophomore in high school coming off of a cocaine withdrawal to undiagnosed ankylosing spondylitis. I mean, it's just crazy skills. They've got good, good. So that's actually I don't know that primary sports medicine, primary care sports medicine, 
I think it's spread out. I don't think it's left. I think it's it's spread out, which I think you can argue that makes it a little bit more functional. One of the unique areas in sports medicine is your work with the doping control program and your work <laughs> on several Olympics. Yeah. And that being part of this community Olympic development program, I've always been fascinated by that when I hear about this community Olympic development program in Springfield, Missouri, and I know you've been how involved with it? that. So tell our, tell our listeners a little bit about that and how that happened. Yeah. How, how did we become the sixth? Community Olympic Development Program in the United States. Actually, we were the first pilot program, and I think we were one of the first real ones. It's serendipity. I always tell some my students when a higher power, whatever your faith concepts are, but whenever a higher power sends you an opportunity, just try not to it up. <laughs> one one of my good friends who's a dermatologist, we had started a program to train young students, and it was it was a beta program. So my son was actually in this when he was 12 years old, or March 44, so a long time ago. And they would allow us to use Hammond's Heart Institute after hours. So after hours, we'd crank the music up, and we'd have 20 or 30 kids. It was a pilot program of Missouri State University. You know, how do, you, how do you do sets? How do you rep? Does this feel okay? Did you progress? All of that stuff. Tom Lynch came over one time because he was working after hours, and uh, because where'd you get all those protocols? We had these old printouts with the old tab feeder printer things on them. And oh, yeah, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, what we were doing. And Tom literally said, oh, you would have liked to have met this guy. He said uh, last week he was taking a mole off of a, a guy in his office. And the old guy says, hey, Dr. Lynch, what you meet? My son-in-law. He's, in Colorado, he's a doctor in Colorado Springs. And so Tom shook hands. Said, oh, what are you doing in Colorado Springs? And Dr. Wade Exum whose wife is from Nixon, Missouri, said, oh, I'm Dr. Wow. Wade Exum. I'm the director of the National Anti-Doping Control Program for the United States Olympic Committee. And I said something like, I, off the cuff, I said, oh, man, I'd always love to do something with the Olympics. You know, who wouldn't? And Tom yeah. says, oh, really? Yeah, I've sure. got some applications. And so we fired it in. I got a call. I got a call. We used to have talkback speakers, so I wouldn't have to let go of the kids. And one of my secretaries, about a week later, says, uh, Hey, Dr. Griezmann, there's this, there's a guy on the phone. He says he's from the United States Olympic Committee. You want to take the call? <laughs> and I go, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that call. And so Wade introduced himself. He is the new director of that program. They've been running it on volunteers. Now it's, well, that's another part of the story. But to make a long story short, back to 91, I started doing work for, for, I got certified as a doping control officer. Went out to Colorado Springs and. We were sort of the Midwest crew, which is, they were desperate for the East Coast, West Coast. They had teams all over the place, but we covered the Midwest. So we'd cover University of Arkansas. They flew, they used to fly us down to New Orleans all the time. So it was sort of fun. But in 1996, yeah. the Atlanta Olympics came up and they were only taking doping control officers with five years experience. And I uh -huh. thought they were running this thing off of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I think we were actually the first trained class that actually went through formal training. In fact, I'm pretty sure we were. So they didn't have that many selects. So I got picked to go to Atlanta. The IOC had a rule back then. Uh, Nikki Vance and Sydney got a change. But back then, LDCOs, League Doping Control Officers, had to be doctors. It was an international rule. So I got to Atlanta. And uh, I had I was an LDCO, and I had my bosses from Colorado Springs working for me on teams. 
because they weren't doctors. So, and every year at the Olympics, you train the next one two years later. So in Atlanta, we had, oh gosh, on six different occasions, I had all Australian teams, all, all Aussies. Oh, wow. And, oh, uh, well, they come, that's a, I don't want to tie us up, but they're, they're fun. Different metabolism, but fun. <laughs> and they roll in at two o'clock in the morning. We roll teams at 5 a.m. Pitcher of beer is not a, that's yeah. not a pitcher. That's just a big glass. Never saw any of them have a problem with it. But so they, one night they go, hey, we want to go out and get something to eat. Telling an Australian crew that Outback is good food was a big mistake. So I got rad yep. about that. And then uh, ran into the same crew, Nikki Vance and Danny Steele, who ended up being chief medical officer for the Sydney Games, ran into them in Nagano. Four Americans got to go to Nagano. At the end of every Olympic, they'll ask you if you, I don't know, scoring system, how they do it, performance ratings. They go, would you like to put your hat in the ring for the next one? So I put it in. And I, I know what happened there. There was an incident with an Olympic gold medalist that I helped get fixed. Yeah. It, it did not turn into a political international firestorm. But Dr. Yoshio Kuroda, uh, who was the head of sports medicine from Japan, he's on the IOC Medical Commission, was that the person at the Olympics. You don't do anything unless there is an IOC Medical Commission on your shoulder. He walks out of the room, goes to the bathroom, you all step back, and you stop. The process stops. So hmm. Dr. Kuroda, I, I can, I've never talked to him. I'm sure he's passed by now. But I'm sure two years later, Dr. Kuroda went down the list and goes, oh, Griezmann, I know that one. Check, and they flew me to <laughs> to Nagano. In Nagano, ran into Nikki and Danny again, Steele, and they had something like, "Hey, can you? Uh, this is not your first rodeo. Can you put some stuff down? What you think works and what didn't work?" I said, oh, "Sure, I can do that." Between games, and about oh seven or eight months after Nagano, I get this letter from uh, the head of the uh, Prince Alexander de Marode, who's the IOC head of the IOC doping control. For international and part of it was in French, inviting me to be on the IOC Medical Commission for Sydney, which was a hoot. I mean, golly, that 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 was one for the highlight of my career. I had my own security escort, drivers. My wife kept going, "Don't get used to this. Right. You know, you're in the, <laughs> you're inside the IOC bubble." And uh, so that was fun. Then yeah. Salt Lake went back down to just being an LDCO, and then everybody goes, "Well, sure. why didn't you go to Athens?" And the answer is 9-11. And not only did I not continue on, I don't know any Americans who did. I, I, I think they staffed really? Athens with Stefan Stolson's group out of Scandinavia. I, I don't know of any Americans who went. It just it put a real wrench in the gear. Uh, they were reforming the National Anti-Doping Control Program, NADP, and they were externalizing it. It was the, the fox guarding the hen house. So the IOC took the IOC Medical Commission Doping Control and put it into WADA, World Anti-Doping Agency. And Britain went to British Athletic Commission or something. The United States went to USADA, United States Anti-Doping Division. Mm -hmm. And I was the uh, uh, Doping Control Officers Committee reporting directly to that new board and did that for several years until about 1995 or 96. And that was when we were approached by several organizations to be community Olympic development program. But Mark, that firewall was so tight that the CODP, Community Olympic Development Program, all the logos and everything, a program of the United States Olympic Committee 
my boss from Springfield, yeah. Missouri was Alicia McConnell in Colorado Springs. And you, you, it was very nice, but they go, you can't do both. You can't work for USADA and the United States Olympic Committee in any, any uh, yeah. capacity. When the Community Olympic Development Program started in, I was chairman of that board. And recently, it's still in existence, but with all the problems that the United States Olympic Committee had with USA Gymnastics and that whole, they, a lot of these peripheral or adjunct programs, they pulled off. So the CODPs used to be a three-legged system. The United States Olympic Committee, the organizing bodies like USA Gymnastics, we were weightlifting, ice hockey, volleyball. They're going to kill me if I forget. forget. We had four or five. <laughs> They're going to kill me. Again. They transitioned. The uh, USOC dropped off, and now it's a two-legged stool. It's the local community sports development program, CSDP, which still runs. It, the only thing is still the same governing bodies, but USOC is not participating anymore until they, I guess that must have hurt, hurt funding and everything. But that's sort of how I got got there. <laughs> you know, when you were doing this program there, it, was it really intended to, to develop athletes locally in Springfield there? Yes. Was, it, was it a training facility type thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, and is it still running? Yeah, yeah. And we still have some of those same links. So for example, we do, believe it or not, in Springfield, Missouri, we have some excellent ice hockey teams and rinks. Volleyball is on my board. There are five Olympians on our board that are in this area. And we've had several of our kids get their skills up enough to where they were invited to Colorado Springs for additional training. We have uh, several steeplechase, eyesight, Tracy Gold. I mean, we've got, we've got some skaters, Olympians in our area. So it's it's helped. It's 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 facilitated that process. You know, like how can you get to be an Olympian ice skater and you're from Springfield, Missouri? You know, how do you get noticed? Well, we help. We can help. We know people. <laughs> But yeah, absolutely. For sure. It's just, and then it spins off. We get, we have access to a lot of the Olympic training protocols and nutrition protocols and state of the art information. And that allows us to pass that on some of our other basketball players and baseball players and football players and soccer players. This is a, one of those questions that I would ask that, you know, what's, what was the most positive thing that you've seen happen or positive change in diagnosing or managing pediatric sports medicine issues? It's kind of that generic question, but just reflecting back on your career, something that you've seen that, that has really been a, a big, significant change in our, in our world. Well, a lot of the changes, even for like ACL repairs and skeletal immature athletes was a big change. Having worked with the spine injured athlete protocols, I think probably the academy can be complimented and for all the work every you all have done on concussion management there's still a lot ahead you know what this the tagovailla issue right going on right now but a lot of work but just recognizing that some of those problems start in pediatrics one of the position papers i authored back on the committee was injuries in youth soccer and this goes back into the 80s and i can that was brutal that was 18 revisions over four and a half years to get that position paper in. And back then, about all that we could conclude was, well, younger kids should do that less and less with lighter soccer balls. But that was back when somebody was saying that somebody published, I think from up north, that heading the ball in soccer was as bad as boxing. That was what triggered that. 
And whether kids should head the ball at all and whether those straps on their heads, I got a call from the chairman of that company uh, on that. And it set the basis for ongoing work. But yeah, the big progress, oh, imaging and knees and backs, uh, return to play protocols are solid, concussion management, return to play, got some work to do, but getting better, getting better. And then mainly it's the training. It's the training and hydration, emphasis on the basics. You know, somebody asked, what would I be known for? And we, they still call them the Griezmann axioms at the training center and it had to do with sports nutrition. Because I actually, after all these years, actually consider my field dietary supplements and ergogenic aids. That That's sort of, I think, I know the mo- not the most about, but a lot of details about and the big axiom there is this. We tell these kids, you know, come in, the plop a can on the counter. And they'll go, how? And there are two questions. The mother wants to know how safe it is. The kid wants to know, is this going to work? And uh, I always tell yep. my graduate students, the only ethical thing you can say is nobody knows. That's Deshay, Dietary Health and Supplementation Act of 1994. Nobody knows what's in those products. You take them at your own risk. Every Olympic athlete is handed a form that says you take those at your own risk. So getting the basics down. If you don't get the basics down, the tricks don't work. If you do get the basics down, the tricks are of little incremental value. And they sort of come back. And that's a truism. I'll, I'll stake my career on that, those two axioms. But then I always tell them, I say, you know, you got to be a little careful with that second one. I think at uh, Salt Lake run up to Salt Lake or something. At the end of three days or four days of competition in bobsled, we were still measuring the difference between first place and eighth place in hundreds of a second. That increment, well, only yeah. works creatine. Methylguanine acetic acid only enhances 5% or something. 5% is a big increment if you're an Olympic bobsledder. But if you're playing soccer out in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and it's hot, you don't want to get anywhere near that stuff. I mean, it's rhabdomyolysis risk. Yeah. Energy drinks are, we spend innumerable amounts of time telling the kids the difference between a sports drink and an energy drink. One's helpful. The other one's disastrous for rhabdomyolysis. Those are the really probably some of the things that we've gotten better at. So on the opposite end of that, where do you think we still need to go with improvements in, in our, in our world? I have my blanket statement, which is we still need more research because obviously yes. a lot of what we do management for most pediatric sports conditions is still just anecdotal. We just do this, but we don't have any evidence to back up a lot of That's the things fair. that we do to treat for the yeah. common things. You know, Ajgut Schlatter is an example. We talk about all the things for Ajgut Schlatter, but we still don't have a lot of evidence to back up that these things yeah. actually make a difference. Yeah. And well, is there something um, better? But I'm curious your thought. I, I think you've just defined the mission of a board certified subboarded pediatric sports medicine person. It's, it's to help the community who are all doing sports medicine figure out what's evidence-based. The standard joke in our office was is the old old movie, Fire the Laser. <laughs> My trainers would come back from some meetings and they always get the latest hot thing, whether it's a Frapier system or a Swimex or they had a laser thing for, I don't know. If you go in our office right now and go, what happened to all the E-STEM units? What happened to all the ultrasound units? We, you know, the, the good news is come back to the basics. It's a lot of hands-on therapy. That's what our trainers are good at. But if I look over the last 30 years, 20 years of 
all the money we spent on gadgets. My advice to your audience is, folks, if you are not a beta site with a lot of research interest, you probably can save yourself a lot of money chasing the last gadget or the last therapy. And Mark, that's you and I both know that's going to probably be the major function of pediatric sports medicine subspecialist is getting that evidence-based data out to people. I mean, just look at the TV commercials on useless. If you don't get the basics down, the tricks don't work. Uh, So getting down to the basics and then help evaluate. But, you know, when you look at, well, what do you need? Uh, My thing is probably concussion management. Even five, 10 years ago, we were starting to talk about, man, if they don't get this concussion thing a little bit more under control, that's going to be the end of high school football. These school systems, they can't afford it. They can't afford to have every head injury evaluated by a neuroscientist somewhere. It ain't going to happen. So they, we, you, there's a lot of work still there. Agree. I think you've you've truly epitomized the fact that we both live in the state that we live in, and our state motto is the show me state. Yeah. <laughs> I always come back to that as I'm in Missouri, I'm in the show me state. You got to show me that this is going to make a difference before we start doing it. Or spend a lot of money. Healthy dose of skepticism right. in our field is probably advantageous. You know, the other thing it's sidelined too is we aren't necessarily brilliant, but we have survived the medical systems. Well, I've seen private practice and managed care, it's come back to managed care, sort of. How we all have survived in the changing healthcare environment going forward, my only advice, good luck with that. <laughs> good luck. I don't yeah. look forward to the next 10 to 15 years of my career with where things are right now with healthcare and health management and all that kind of stuff. It's it's a, yeah. it's a pretty toxic how, environment out there right now. It is. How much money? I'd be curious, everybody, has anybody ever put a price tag nationally to what capitated managed care costs this country and how much money did it really save? My, my son has this equivalent of management and uh, healthcare administration, among other things. Navigating that is mergers, acquisitions, disintegration, reintegration. Mark, good luck with that. That's the part I don't miss. I don't. I don't blame you at all, Bernie. I don't blame you at all. <laughs> so the way we usually end our podcast is we do something that we call the Pearl of the Podcast. And uh, since we're not, it's not. This isn't an episode that's focused on any particular topic. You have carte blanche as far as what you want your pearl or pearls. Uh, we certainly do appreciate pearls. So I love your pearl or pearls of the podcast. Well, the no one I already mentioned. This is again my field: dietary supplements. You spend ninety percent of your time. I'm getting the basics down because the tricks don't, the tricks are very little incremental value. And number two is the need for fairly sophisticated sports medicine intervention. I think you don't agree with me. It's getting younger and younger. The stuff they used to report in the pros is now in college and college is now in JUCO. JUCO, it's high school, high school, it's middle school, middle school, it's elementary school. So some of the good work that's been done on elite athletes and early specialization has been really interesting to follow that evolution. So my one pearl would be, hang in there. Pediatric sports medicine is probably getting more significant, not less significant as the years go on. And then the other thing is the same thing Dr. Garrick uh, told me 40 years ago. You can do this. (laughs) Uh, it, It was really a good pearl Good advice. And, you know, all the books and articles and everything else, uh, it, it is, I owe a lot to the Academy of Pediatrics for 
let me participate in that ongoing story. Hopefully, if nothing else, we've sort of set a good foundation for the future to build on. Well, I'd love to thank Dr. Bernie Griesmer for joining me on the podcast today. And uh, truly, Bernie, I really want to thank you just your support and encouragement over the years. You've been a great friend and, and colleague from a three-hour distance away drive uh, in, in this state, certainly. I really want to plan on trying to bring more of these profiles of colleagues in pediatric sports medicine in the future. So I'm going to be hopefully doing that over the course of the next year and, and beyond. So please check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We do appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.